לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. כל רמה, מאה ושתיים שלוש, Shalom, and welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Ballaman in Highland Park, New Jersey, at the Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation, Anche Emmet. Joining me upstairs here, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanowski from Anche Emmet in... No, Anche Chesed. Anche Chesed, sorry. We're kind. You tell the truth, but we're kind. I'm sorry, Anche Chesed. And Rabbi Barry Chesler of no Anche, but... but it's all Meshach Today School in Long Island. Sorry about that. Welcome. It's great to see you guys. We have an amazing Parsha this week because every week's an amazing Parsha, and we have the privilege to study this with you. We thank you for being with us. Let's get right into it. Emor. Emor ala koanim b'nei aharon v'amarta aleim. What? There are three emor, three aleph memreshes in the first pasuk. V'yomer Hashem al-Moshe, emor ala koanim v'amarta aleim. Rabbi Barry Chesler, give us a... A little homily to start off with. So I, I think the first thing to say is that speech is very important. And the Torah portion has a lot to say about physicality, the blemishes and disablements that could disfigure our bodies. But ultimately, and the, the Torah reading itself will end with a speech of sorts, blasphemy. And the beginning is to remind us of how important it is, how important speech is, How we talk, who we talk to, and what we talk about. And Rashi has a nice little comment. This is directed to the Kohanim, because the Kohanim have a special, uh, special responsibility as being the leaders to be even more careful with their speech than perhaps the people that they're talking to. So it's very interesting. You know, there, there, there are plenty of synonyms for speech, but there's often made a, um, a dichotomy between Amira and Dibur. Dibur, and even in the, in, the, in the consonants of Amor and Dibur, you get the sense that Dibur is a little harsher, Amira is softer. And, and I, I, I seem to recall Midrashim on that theme where Dibur is the harsh speech or the much more stringent and direct speech, Amira is softer speech. And here it probably, it's a very interesting idea that the, the rules pertaining to the, the intimate lives of the Kohanim It directed in an intimate way, Amira, in, in, in speech. And that's what... So Dibur is also used to mean revelation. Mm-hmm. And I think the connection is that Davar can mean both the word and the thing. And a Dibur is something substantive, which is what we associate revelation with. And an Amir with a silent Aleph can, is more like a breath of air. Maybe per, perhaps a little more uh, transient. So, so the Parsha at the beginning deals with the relationships that Kohanim are allowed to have and you know, specifically who they mourn for. Uh, and then we go into a, a very uh, interesting section, uh, a section of qualifications for the Kohanim. And, and it's a focus on physical qualifications, qualifications relating to the body. And as we read this and we you know, discover the different kinds of things that you know, delimit 
different kinds of koanim or disqualified koanim, we, I think, approach this whole topic with a, a different set of eyes. I think, Jeremy, you want to just help us understand, A, the world that we're talking about and the world and our world in relationship to ability, disability, physicality, deformity, etc. I mean, these are small topics. Small topics. Yeah, this is not a, um, this is not, I think, a, a chapter that goes down all that smoothly for the contemporary reader because um, I, I think that, you know, there's, there's maybe no, speaking to, speaking to my, my brother, Canadian, my Canadian brother here, there's no, there's no maybe bit of American Jewish poetry that is as beloved as Leonard Cohen's line in Anthem. You know, there's a crack, forget your perfect offering, there's a crack a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Yeah. It's the imperfection that our contemporary spirituality loves to treasure. And we're suspicious of claims to perfection because we've been burned too many times by people who maybe come off as perfect, but then you look a little bit closer, a little bit more, more closely, and you see that there's some dishonesty and some fakery. And, and so the apparent perfection turns out to be a bit of a scam. Um, and so I think that in our world, both for that reason and because of a, a fundamentally uh, wonderful, loving, ethical impulse, we are going, you know, our, it's a major social imperative to see to it that, um, that people, you know, with, with certain kinds of physical impairments, disabilities, have, th those don't become obstacles to their personal, professional, social flourishing. So, you know, it's really important in American society nowadays to, to see to it that, uh, that those barriers are removed. And this is not Parshat Amor's approach to, uh, to the priesthood, just like the animals that are offered on the altar have to be unblemished and they have to be whole and perfect. As, as the anthropologist Mary Douglas said about Leviticus, wholeness is the prerequisite for holiness. They thought that priests, just like the animals had to be good looking and perfect, they thought that the priests had to be good looking and perfect and you know there had to be no missing limbs and no hunchbacks and no uh, injuries to one's genitalia. No meroach ashech. Ouch! Well, we don't we don't want any of that stuff. And and I you know as I try to move from my you know my own contemporary kind of approach to these things to trying to intuit what ancient people might have thought. What I what I arrive at and maybe this is right or maybe this is wrong is that in our world where there's really kind of, all in all, a lot of health, um, we don't want to um, exclude the people who have troubles. In the ancient world where everybody was sick all the time and people didn't get better and, and people's, you know, people's physicality was much more at risk, I think they were trying to create some sort of zone around the, the Beit HaMikdash, around the Mishkan, around the priesthood, around the, the religious shrine that didn't have all of that frightening brokenness stuff. Um, it's, it's but it, profound, know. I think, idea, you know, and, and, and of course it just illustrates the, the, the distance between our worlds, you know, the, and, and, and especially in terms of the, the sense of the body, the picture of the body, um, the, the picture of vigor and strength as, a, as a, an ideal. What is, the, what is the physical ideal? And I, I I'm concurring with you, and I'm wondering if underneath this is a is a um, an image of God issue. Whether or not there is hovering in this these depictions that the the fullness of 
physical life gives you the fullness of God's image in you, which is, of course, something that, that you know, we, we would not agree with as moderns. I, know, Barry, I, I, think this is, I think this is really significant. Um, Selim Elohim, if you want to read really uh, literally, you know, you want to give a little bit of hyper-literal uh, uh, interpretation to that, especially reading through the idioms of rabbinic Hebrew, um, Tselem Elohim means that human beings are the are the idol of God, right? Like uh, Heschel writes this that that Jew, Jewish opposition to idolatry doesn't mean that there are no idols. It means that there is only one adequate idol of the divine, and that is the human. And I think that they would have felt perhaps that if you look at the human being um, in its perfection, you see the divine, and and if you look um, you know, in the in the broken or blurry image, it's it's just broke. It's it's a it's a lesser manifestation. Now, I do think that our way. I mean, I can't. Whatever. I live in the twenty first century, so I find our way <laughs> a little easier to understand, and I find I find it a little bit easier to to resonate with it. Even that that all of us are the blurred and broken image of the divine, not the, not the perfect and unblemished one. So but, I want to I, I want to make a. I want to make a statement for the ancient world and suggest three things. Normally I have two things to say, but this is Try such three. an expansive topic. <laughs> that the, the first thing is this idea that the Kohen as the offerer has to be as perfect as the offering. That it's easy to think that our sacrifice is going to be better than we are. And by emphasizing these physical features of the Kohen, it's a reminder that the Kohen has to be as much as the sacrifice itself. The other way of looking at it is perhaps the Kohen himself is the sacrifice, that the animal on one hand is going to be offered to God on the altar, but the Kohen is offering himself, and therefore he has to be perfect as well. But I think what strikes me listening to you talk is that our whole notion of wholeness has changed. And so we're really talking about something different than our ancestors on one hand. We live in a more inclusive society, but also something that's very much the same as well, because we're still talking about wholeness, but in a slightly different way. So in a little, a little later in the Parsha, we're going to have a list of the holidays. And I'm reminded of this tension between Yom Kippur and the beginning of the Parsha. On Yom Kippur, we say at Kol Nidre that we are broken people and God, and we're going to approach God in our brokenness. That's very foreign to this idea of perfection that we have at the beginning of the Parsha. But the Bratislava Rebbe once said that there's nothing so whole as a broken heart. And I think that our wholeness today contains a lot more brokenness than our ancestors allowed for. But I also think that had they lived in Jeremy's 21st century, which I embrace as well, even though more than half my life, Nebuch was in the 20th century. <laughs> Until that, 120, Barry. Until 120. Okay, well, th then that will make the 21st the dominant century. That, yes, I, I, I lost my train of thought. Um, well, had the ancient people lived in the 21st century. Right. It had to do with, with, with wholeness and our sense of brokenness, which is has changed. But if our ancestors 
lived in the 21st century, I don't know that they would have continued to maintain their standard of wholeness. I think they would have embraced ours as well and seeing in us today worthy descendants of themselves. So let me let me just make a, a, a small pitch and I, I, I'm going to do a stretch here, which is I think that there's also an incredible amount of physicality involved in the ancient cult, in the ancient religious life. You, you, you couldn't be a priest if you couldn't you know, carry an animal or you couldn't hoist an animal and, and skin an animal. And, and you know, a few weeks ago, we were studying sacrifices. I went to these videos, these butcher videos, and, and you know, I tried to get some, do some research, you know. And these guys, they're, they're not small guys. You know, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a, a YouTube, the bearded butchers, okay? You take a look at the bearded butchers. The, these guys, you know, have a little, a little bit of busser on them, if you know what I mean. They're 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 strong guys. They're healthy guys. The butcher was always a person that had to, you know, hoist around carcasses of meat. So there's something to be said for the physicality. There's something to be said for the social history of perfection, which is, I think, what we're talking about, and maybe the social history of beauty. And that I I don't think it's directly said here. But there is a there is an understated uh, idea that your religious life should embody beauty in some way, and that the physical form is a beautiful form. While that's a Greek idea, to be sure, I doubt that our ancestors, you know, all human beings like looking at beautiful human beings, you know, and 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 the idea of what constitutes a beautiful body or beautiful, I do, it does change over time. You know, just take a look at the you know the early twentieth century. Look at, at who, who were the great actors of the Yiddish stage and, and, and Yiddish film. And these were people that you would not necessarily identify today as being beautiful, but they were, they were gorgeous. They were beautiful in their time. And they, they, they expressed and they showed, they demonstrated a different ideal of physical beauty than we would appreciate. And Jeremy, you just said that you know, they're filming someone on, on your block, right? And, you know, so... Tell us about. <laughs> well, just here, you know, here in New York, we have lots of lots of movies, and and we had lots of celebrity sightings and stuff, and uh, uh, over the years. But it was just they were just filming a movie outside the synagogue today, and I just noting, like the the actors just don't look like the rest of us. Isn't it so interesting? Isn't it interesting that like, you know, on the one hand, of course, you know, we. We do think that the uh, unmeetable ideals of beauty, especially especially for women who who you know I think wrestle with this in a different way. I mean, I'm sure most of the men I know would also like to look like George Clooney or or Brad Pitt, but it's it's just easier. Um, I think overrated, for, huh? Overrated. overrated. Richard Gere, then Robert Redford. Uh, give me, give me a beard, give me a nose, give me. <laughs> you got a nose. I but... want, I want the Jewish beauty. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Gal Gadot, then baby. So, <laughs> so, but I, I think it's, I think it's obviously harder, harder for for women to make questions of you know body image and stuff. But we we can imagine the ways in which that it's it's not psycholo- psychologically healthy to to venerate impossible standards of of physical beauty, but. I, it's also kind of like hard to disagree with what you were saying that it's good to try to um, it, it's good to try to you know bring an aesthetic uh, experience to religious worship. We want 
we want hidur um, mitzvah, uh, like we want to make we make our religious spaces and our religious actions also beautiful. But but it's hard to read this passage and not feel like it's fetishizing something that that the rest of us will just never be able to live up to. I want to note, by the way, this in the course of the, talking about the animal sacrifices, there is one thing which I find really interesting that an animal that is said to be sarua or kalut, what exactly those things are, I couldn't couldn't tell you, but there's somehow some sort some sort of defect. I think our translation holds them as as uh, limb extended or contracted, they count for a nidava, but not a neder. So in other words, if you take, if you just say, oh, I would like to give this offering, you can give the animal with those imperfections. If you say, I hereby vow to give an animal, then you can't give that animal because it's, it doesn't count enough as an animal. This one is a little close to forgetting that perfect offering. This one is a little bit down the road of saying, okay, there are certain things which, honestly, it's not an A plus, okay? Uh, you, you have a real obligation, and if you do it this way, it's a little bit little bit uh, sloppy or slapdash, and so that doesn't really count as discharging your obligations, but it's also not nothing. And, and I kind of, uh, I like that uh, bit of a sliding scale in the, in the worship that, because in my own religious life, by the way, as a fairly traditional but not Orthodox Jew, I think that all or nothing, bad, bad direction. I would always rather have a positive something than a negative nothing. And so I like this idea that you can make a nidava out of imperfection. You can't make a neder because it's, that's a higher standard. And we recognize that there are ideals that we may not meet. But they're also not nothing, and so let's let's give ourselves a little bit of credit for the you know when we do the best we can. So let's let's shift to to another concept that I think is really such a important, maybe precious concept in in the in, in Judaism, and it's found in our parsha, the pasuk Lo Techalalu Etchem Kochi, do not desecrate my holy name, the Nik Dashti Betoch Bnei Yisrael Ani Hashem Kadishchem, so that I shall be sanctified in the midst of the people of Israel, who took you out of Egypt to be your God. This is the concept of Kiddush Hashem, of sanctifying God's name, which is really you know, a deeply central concept in, in our Jewish public behavior. Um, the awareness of our Jewishness in the public sphere is a sanctification of God's name when we do things that are good, things that are, are you know, even little things. I mean, if we, if we do a mitzvah in public, that's a kiddush Hashem. And we, right. we, 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 in a way, we can prime ourselves to reading our, any, you know, the news. You know, Bernie Madoff passed away, you know, last week. Okay, not kiddush Hashem, right? Could, couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Right, chilul Hashem, okay? So, because it defames all of us, right? Defame, you know, I, I you know, even when he was uh, sentenced, and even you know, we, I wonder what happened. I mean, I wonder who buried him. Where did he, you know? I mean, what what happens? And and we don't know. I don't know. If you got the call, Jeremy. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm glad I I'm glad I wouldn't because I'm glad I didn't. At least in that case, didn't because on the one hand, I just I I feel myself that if somebody said to me, "Listen, here's a person, a bad person, bad person." Um, and he's dead now. And will you help his family say goodbye to that person? I think that I would say, I would want to say, yeah, I'm going to come through for you in this bad moment. But 
that rotten person, I mean, he was like a uniquely bad person. Um, you know, I wouldn't, I would certainly would not have wanted to do that. But I think what exactly what you said, Elliot, about Chilul Hashem, the desecration of the divine name, and Venik Dashti Betokbene Yisrael, that I, the divine, will be sanctified amidst the children of Israel, means that, that we have a community whose behavior in our, in our own public square, but also to the gaze of other people towards our community, should be one that says, ah, look at those Jewish people. They do, in fact, um, make the name of God beautiful. I mean, there's this great line in the Marav of Yoma about, um, uh, you know, have to et Adonai Elohecha, you shall love the Lord your God. But et, literally, the particle et can, can take mean with. And so the question is, well, what's, what is the, what is the, the, the with particle? What is the ribui? What is the expansion of love the Lord your God? And the Talmud there says, shem mit yadcha, that the name of heaven should become more beloved through your behavior. And like, if you see people behave beautifully, you say, ah, what a wonderful culture, what a wonderful religion, what a wonderful Torah. And if you see people behaving like, like scoundrels, you will say, ah, what a terrible religion, what a terrible culture, what a terrible Torah. It places a tremendous responsibility, especially those of us who publicly go along with, with our public symbols, our kippot or whatever we, you know, we are wearing, you know, we comport ourselves with these symbols in our own awareness of God, but also aware that we are playing a role for the sanctification of God's name in, in almost everything that we do. Barry, you want to you react to this? Yeah, I, I'm struck here by a couple of different ideas. So the Bernie Madoff's death raises some interesting issues in that obviously once he dies, he needs to be buried, and that's a communal responsibility. And as far as I know, there really is no way in Judaism for someone who is a human being to become a non-human being. So the Kiddush Hashem would be to give a properly respectful burial to someone who was so deficient in many Jewish and human qualities. And that that could actually be a sanctification of God's name. That, yeah, go on. I'm saying in addition to taking care of the family, if there were survivors, you know, and that would be. Right. But also we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that as you, Jeremy, I think you use the phrase, he was uniquely bad, but he was also uniquely human as each of us is. And we sometimes lose sight of that fact. And, you know, when you raise the issue of Kiddush Hashem and Chilul Hashem, I was struck by the following. There are some things that are obviously a sanctification of God's name and a desecration of God's name, where you don't need an expert to tell you what the difference is. But there are also things that start out as a sanctification of God's name that can become a desecration. And that where the bad motive completely colors uh, an action that would seem to be a positive action. And that's what we have to be on guard against too, that if we keep in mind our goal to sanctify God's name always will be in a much better position than if we put ourselves as the goal aside from everything else. And, you know, in Madoff's case, not to belabor the point, that is what he did. He put himself and his family perhaps in front of everything else and destroyed institutions and families to do it. 
anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to just note, I'm, uh, it's going to take me a little bit more time to um, uh, find the spot. Um, the, uh, yeah, here, here it is. In the, um, in the Mission in Sanhedrin chapter six, first of all, it's a beautiful drash about the way, this is Mishnah Sanhedrin chapter six, Mishnah five, there's a beautiful drash about how the way how God is suffers um, at the loss of any human being. Um, if God cares about the, the death or the blood of the wicked people, how much more so of the righteous people. But it goes on to say um, that there were different graveyards for those who were executed by the court. So yes, it's true. You don't, become, you don't cease to become a human being. You have to be buried, but you don't get to go to the, the ancestral tomb with full regalia and full, and full honor. Like there is, there's gotta be some sort of way in which the community says, yeah, you are a human being, but we don't wanna have anything to do with you and your rottenness. And, and especially with a guy like Bernie Madoff, who in addition to the massive amounts of thieving, that the person did to other human beings, stole so much tzedakah yeah. from the Jewish community. Like, if you steal tzedakah, you are, you are low. All right, so speaking of sanctification and, and Kiddush Hashem, one of the ways that, that we, we exercise Kiddush Hashem is in the holiday cycle. I mean, we, we are living out, um, uh, you know, the Jewish narrative in the, in the, in the holidays. And so much of this Parsha is familiar to us because we, we do read it, Within the holiday cycle, uh, on one of the Yom Tovim, um, and uh, you know, starting with the the passage Shor Okesef Ki Valed, but uh, and then it goes to Elamo uh, Adei Adonai, right? The, these are the the sacred occasions of the Lord. Okay, Elamo Adei Adonai Asher Tikrotam Yikra Kodesh Elahem Moadai, and it starts with Shabbat and goes in through the 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 holiday cycle through the first month of the year, which is Nisan, and therefore the holiday of Pesach, on through Yisurat Omer, which we are in right now, to Shavuot, to Sukkot, or to, to what is Rosh Hashanah, although the word Rosh Hashanah is not used there, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, etc. Um, so give, give, give us your, 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 your drush on, on the holidays. I, I, maybe I'll ask the question, I'll lead you. Which Elliot, is, Elliot, give us your drush on the holidays. I'm going to give you my drush on the holidays. Let's say as follows. I think holidays, that what we have here is a snapshot of a snapshot of, of the, the location of the holidays within, in the midst of the, the holiness code. That is, you access holiness through the holiday, the holiday occasion. That's, of course, the, the simple explanation. But we know through our experience living in America that holidays have their own history. And you see that also in the Bible. What is fascinating in the Bible is that you have this calendar here. You have another calendar in Dvarim. You have another calendar in Bamidbar. You have another calendar in, in Shemot. You know, these are different places where different aspects of the holiday are mentioned. And if you take a look at the, the civic cycle of holidays in America, be it Independence Day, Memorial Day, or uh, Thanksgiving, you can see that from the origin of these holidays 150, 200 years ago, uh, maybe more, uh, there is a social history to that. These holidays have evolved. And I think that each generation and each historical epoch uh, brings a different narrative to the holidays as, as we 
experience that in the in the Bible in the Torah. This is a, is a great example of of you know how poetic things never mean just one thing. Poetic things always have a rich you know resonance of of nuance and meaning. And and you know Pesach and Shavuot here in Parsha Demor are really described as being agricultural. And we 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 sort of you know we conservative rabbis grow up on the idea of you know, religious evolution and what, what things meant at a certain time and all the holidays were originally uh, either agricultural, like like the springtime holidays and the harvest holidays or, or kind of um, astronomical, like Hanukkah falling at the winter solstice and stuff like that and, and, and Purim around the, you know, around the springtime, um, springtime carnival. But then they acquire kind of historical meanings. When we come to, when we come to uh, Amor, the holidays are really agricultural. You know, Pesach is Pesach is the beginning of the barley harvest, and then Shavuot sort of the, the the later you know high wheat harvest. And then, oddly enough, in in our passage for this week, it's Sukkot that has the the remembrance of leaving Egypt because Ki Sukkot Hoshavti Ad Bnei Yisrael Bahotzi Otam Meretz Mitzrayim. I I I I let you dwell, or I made you dwell in booths when I took you out of Egypt. It's like. What? <laughs> I thought Passover was the holiday about leaving Egypt. But in Parshat Emor, at least in, in this passage, um, that association is applied to Sukkot. Yeah. Very, on the holidays. I wanted to add two things here. So the first thing is that for those of us who read the Bible critically, we, hear, we have here the fusion between Pesach and Matzot. That Pesach, as we talked about a few weeks ago, maybe a few months ago already, was originally a shepherd's holiday, a matzot, a farmer's holiday. The symbols of each reflect the, the culture in which they began. Um, a sheep for the paschal sacrifice and matzah, which is a bread product for the farmer. And what happens here in Amor is that the Pesach is offered in the late eve afternoon of the 14th. And matzot begins the next day so that you only have to offer one sacrifice. You could have rather than have to bring two sacrifices separately, you can now just bring one. The other thing I would note in connection with Yom Kippur is the, the different way in which rabbis and modern scholars work. So the expression we have with Yom Kippur is that it's observed from evening of the ninth to evening of the 10th. It's the only holiday in the Bible that begins in the evening. And so for the rabbis, this becomes the dogma for all the other holidays. It's mentioned here, of course, because it's not just about Yom Kippur, it's about all the other holidays. But if you look in a modern scholar such as Baruch Levine, he points out that this was probably the only holiday that began in the evening, that every other holiday originally in the Bible probably began in the morning and then ended at the evening, which is how the sacrifices work, the Tamid in the morning and the Tamid in the late afternoon. And it's, you know, fascinating to me because we have two very different views of words that could not seem to be plainer in their meaning to someone with a, who's reasonably conversant in, in biblical Hebrew. Okay, on that note, <laughs> we have this, this kind of uh, postscript to the Parsha, which uh, includes this uh, moment of cursing an Israelite man or a son of an Israelite woman who is also the son of an Egyptian man. He uh, goes out into the, he's fighting uh, with uh, some other dudes 
and he Vayikov ben Aisha Yisraeli that Hashem he curses God's name or he uh, how do you translate Vayikov? Well, that's, that's why it's such a great line because yeah. um, uh, it's he, it's punctures and lechalel is also a word that could Pretty mean um, to make a hole. So to not a w h o l e or a holy, which which are words in this context that, that are signify like goodness. Uh, it's it's the name can be punctured or the name can be eroded. And so what I take away from this the the story at the end here of the of the Mikhalel or the blasphemer is uh, not only that he said a bad thing, but that the name of God is quite vulnerable. Yeah. It's it's not that God is the you know, it's not that God is impervious. Like you know, at a certain level, you know, it's like, well, what does God care about if we worship idols or not? So what? Or what does God care if we blaspheme? God is eternal and big deal, and nothing happens here could affect the eternal and infinite. Actually, that's not the uh, that's not the biblical mindset. The biblical mindset is that the the divine is is needs human care, and if you if you mess it up, you put a hole in it. Right, and that God's name is vulnerable, and that and that you know, as we said earlier, in a different way, the the Jewish people is a vessel for God's name, and and we have to we we have to care. And it's interesting that this is a violation of the third commandment. Um, and uh, it was the scholar D. N. Friedman, David Noel Friedman, who said maybe the first nine ten books of the of the the entire Bible are organized around different violations of the ten commandments. Here, you know, we find the violation of the third commandment in the third book. You know, uh, is that a coincidence? Um, and and the, the notion that uh, the most severe of penalties would come to the person who violates God's name, because if you ruin God's reputation, uh, there's nothing much you can do about that. God can't really do anything about that. Unless well, so to follow along that, Elliot, so the Mikoshesh, the guy who goes out on Shabbat and gathers the wood, yeah. is in the fourth book, the fourth exactly. commandment in the fourth book. Right, and the Blessed more is in the fifth book. And it was a theoretical construct, the rebellious child. Yes, exactly. Interesting, eh? Not bad. And, eh? and I'm sure we can carry this all the way through, but it, it's true that it, well, it, David Noel Friedman was no slouch when it came to the Bible. So. <laughs> okay, yeah. I don't think he would have said it if there wasn't something to it. He was but I want to draw he was our attention to conversing with biblical, as you said, passively, passively conversing with biblical Hebrew. Indeed. Go ahead, Barry. I, I wanted to suggest something else that what I find most fascinating about this story and it's one of the few stories that we have in Parshat Vayikra which we have to I mean in Sefer Vayikra which we have to remember almost the entire book is law and narrative and here we have a story is that they don't know what to do with this guy so I don't know it's not quite a violation of the third commandment because I would think that for the ten commandments they knew exactly what to do and in my reading, I'm not entirely convinced that they need to find out what the specific punishment is. Well, you know, it's that, interesting. The, the, the Midrash it picks up on this. It, it gives us a whole backstory to which we don't have time to go into. But but you read that and you say, like, uh, you know, maybe he had a he had a good reason. He was he went to a court. He he lost in a court, and he felt that the whole court was stacked against him. And he said, basically. Uh, you know, to hell with you and your courts, basically, and stronger. Terms. So what's important here is that there are a few cases in the Torah where Moses doesn't know what to do. Yeah. Right. We yeah. like to think that he got everything at Mount Sinai 
And then we have these stories where the people don't know what to do and Moses has to go ask God, what am I supposed to do? And it gives us a, a theory of human and divine communication that we often don't get in what used to be called Sunday school. Indeed. <laughs> well, on that note, on human and divine communication, which is what the study of Torah is all about, we're trying to figure it out. And uh, it's been a wonderful time to be with you. Thank you all our listeners, watchers, everywhere you are, whether you are here or in Canada or around the world. Thank you for watching Parsha Talk. We love you. Send us your questions. And we'll see you again next week on another edition.